I'm Spencer Bailey. This is Time Sensitive. Hey, everyone. For this week's episode, I'm joined in the studio by the London-based artist, master potter, and writer Edmund DeWall. Widely known for his 2010 book, The Hair with Amber Eyes, Edmund is also the author of the books The White Road from 2015 and Letters to Commando from 2021. At the core of Edmund's work is the theme of memory. Whether in pottery or prose, he explores storytelling, emotion, and history through objects. Throughout his output, Edmund has dug into notions around the archive and the library, pulling together various shards of history to potent and even profound effect. As respected and renowned for his pots as he is for his writing, he has two exhibitions on view this fall at Gagosian in New York. One of them, To Light and Then Return, pairs his works with tintypes and platinum prints by Sally Mann. The other, This Must Be the Place, is a solo presentation that features his porcelain vessels poetically arranged in vitrines, as well as stone benches carved from marble. What I so appreciate about Edmund is that all that he does is part of one long, intertwined continuum. He views his pots and texts as part of a single, rigorously sculpted body of work and ongoing conversation across time. Earlier this year, I stopped by his South London studio, a beautiful, light-filled space that includes two separated mezzanine levels, one for him to make his pots, the other for him to do his writing. It is about as clear an architectural embodiment of one's practice as you can get. Among many things on this episode, we speak about his affinity for and deep engagement with Japan and the roles of rhythm and breathing in his work. His answer to my final question in particular on the act of letting go, I'll be thinking about and processing for a long time to come. Before we get into the episode, I'd first like to thank our Season 8 presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels, which this year is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels at the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals. On view through January 2024, Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the U.S. for the first time. Creating a lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones forms a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition space highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. You can learn more at www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. That's www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. And now, here's my conversation with Edmund. Hi, Edmund. Welcome to Time Sensitive. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a long time in the planning. Very happy <laughs> to be here. I thought we'd start our conversation today with a short poem by Paul Ceylon, an excerpt from Etched Away. Deep in time's crevasse, by the alveolate ice waits a crystal of breath, your irreversible witness. How do you think about these lines? 
I know that you're familiar with them within the context of your own work, but also just from the perspective of time? Well, I don't think you could ask me a harder question. <laughs> and I say that completely truthfully, actually, Spencer, because as soon as you speak those lines, I mean, there's a word crevasse in that fragment of the poem, and I fall into Paul Celan's language and his life and the way he used language. And I see that poem on the page, the sort of jaggedness of this poem, you know, these black words separating themselves on the white page. And immediately I'm lost, actually. So how does it make me feel? What do I think about it? How, how does it relate to me? Well, I mean, how long have we got? <laughs> you know, Solan has been in my life for a very, very long time. I mean, I'm incredibly old and he's been 40 years of reading him and his poetry has sort of accreted significance and aggregated power for me over the years but I'm always taken back and surprised by how shocking his poetry is, because he detonates language. He takes a word, it's particularly true in, in of course, in, in the German in which he writes. He takes a word and he fractures it. He breaks it down into syllables, into component parts, and brings them back together again, like a sort of scientist colliding words in, a, in an experiment. And so his language is full of fissures breaking apart and also collisions. And of course, you know, on so many levels that, that I can go on for hours. How, how long? How, 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 you, I mean, well, sounds, how unfair it, is this to land me with Celan <laughs> in the first minute of being here, sitting next to you? This, you know, well, where, where, do, just, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go with this? I, was I, thinking love, that, I love that poem. I love him. This poem to me also has to do with a sort of sense of deep time. I mean, you're talking about crevasses and fissures and collisions. How do you think about the perspective of time when it comes to those lines? Well, there are a couple of very powerful things in that about time. One is, of course, that Celan takes language back to root. So he's what he does is to think almost of the foundations of language. Language is a cry, as a sound. The word is a, a kind of a glyph, as a mark on a cave wall, you know, or a kind of finger in the sand marking out a, a shape, or into clay, you know, this, this inscription into clay. So this is language as sound, language as mark making. So that takes you into deep time, takes you into kind of how you begin to make poetry, how you begin to make song, how you begin to witness memory. All of that stuff is profoundly meaningful for me, powerful for me. Because Salan takes you to the word as an object, to the beginning of a, a word as an object. And that's my beginning, 
probably my end as well. Time, yes, absolutely time. Deep time in this poem. This interview is coming during an exciting and busy time for you. In the coming days, you're going to receive the 2023 Isamu Noguchi Award and open two exhibitions at Gagosian Gallery here in New York. This Must Be the Place and To Light and Then Return. Let's start with the Noguchi Award. Yes, let's start there. <laughs> As I was researching for this interview, I came to learn some special, profound even, connections between your life and work and Noguchi's. I want you to elaborate on this, okay. but <laughs> just to name a few. First and foremost, there's the fact that when you were 17, you studied Japanese pottery in Bizen, Japan, a region where Noguchi made pottery in the 1950s. Then there's also the phrase, high unseriousness, <laughs> a phrase that was once used by the art critic Hilton Kramer to damn Noguchi's ceramic experiments, <laughs> and that in your book, 20th Century Ceramics, you reclaim, holding it up high like a trophy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Noguchi is also included in your 2011 book, The Pot Book, an anthology of vessels of all periods. And in 2016, with Ai Weiwei, you co-curated an exhibition at the National Gallery of Prague titled Needed Knowledge, the Language of Ceramics, which included work by Noguchi. I could keep going. <laughs> yes, yes. I guess I would also mention that earlier this year, when you were traveling in India, you made a pilgrimage to the Jantar Mantar. Of course. <laughs> which I am obsessed with that place. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. These architectural scale astronomical instruments in Delhi and Jaipur that Noguchi once photographed. Tell me about this deep connection with Noguchi as you see it. <laughs> to begin at the beginning. I mean, there are so many points of, of of reference in my life of of um i don't know of renewal and sustenance from his his life and his practice so 17 i end up in bizen working with an elderly potter called kanashigi michiaki who for the month or so i'm there i sit next to his wheel his wheel is turned i help father kiln get grit out of clay I'm allowed to make one pot in the month. It's very kind of Japanese. And of course, that's the same place that his father, Toshio Kanishige, worked with Noguchi in the 50s. So there's, there's a direct meeting there of connection. Kanashige Jr., who was only about 70, talked about Noguchi, talked about this extraordinary person who'd come in and mucked around <laughs> in the in Bizen had, had made odd objects there, and and they'd been fired, and there was a sense of sort of of pride and incomprehension about this great artist having worked in their household in those kilns. Years later, years and years later, I realised that there's no book existing which will help me work out where I am in the world in terms of, I want to make installations, I want to, I want to work with architecture, I want to do all these kinds of things. And there's no book on ceramics that kind of charts this fissile history. So I think, oh, bugger it, I'm going to have to actually write this book. So I, I spend a couple of years and write a book called 20th Century Ceramics. And in that time, I write 
the central section of that book is about Fontana and about Noguchi. And it's about these artists who return to clay brilliantly. Fontana goes to Sèvres and he mucks around and tears things and sort of blows up the kilns of Sèvres uh, by making these powerfully transgressive figures. And what does Noguchi do? After the war, he goes to Japan, he goes to Kamakura, he builds a, an extraordinary studio by covering his studio with local clay. You have to imagine sort of this great percussive sound of him slapping wet clay onto the walls of his studio, carving out a niche for a, a Hanewa, for an ancient clay figure. And what is he doing there? He's returning to his Japanese-ness to rediscover how he can understand identity through clay. He makes these beautiful, extraordinary, I think they're iconic series of works, working with some of the great ceramic artists of the day, shows them back in America, and the critics hate it. <laughs> they absolutely despise it. They can't work out what's going on. High on seriousness, as you say, quoting Kramer. And I think it's one of the great moments. It shows the utter lack of understanding with the sort of art establishment about what can happen with clay. And of course, high on seriousness is kind of like a script for Noguchi's life. I mean, it's sort of, you know... He's one of the few great artists who understands play. I mean, just think about those playgrounds. Think about, think about how he allows people to move through sculpture, how he invites play through touch, how he brings materials together with abandonment. So for me, he's been massively, massively significant. Was that, is that enough? I could go on. <laughs> how long have we got? Number two. <laughs> well, let's. That was incredible. I mean, it immediately got me thinking about the end of his life, the 1986 Venice Biennale, and how he put a slide in front of the US yes. pavilion, yeah. sort of a, a middle finger or a thumb at the art establishment, yeah. and filled the pavilion with his Akari light sculptures, saying, This is art. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, at the heart of, of that is. I mean, you talked about deep time, you got me off on Silent straight away. But of course, what Kraft does, and this is why Noguchi has such a kind of material intelligence, is that he completely understands that Kraft is always a dialogue between continuity and radical change, but that unless you've actually got the disciplines in place, the disciplines to make a curry lamp, lamps, incredible, extraordinary thinking, the disciplines to fire a wood kiln in Tambor or Bizen to understand how flame works. You can't actually make these beautiful, playful, transgressive objects. So he's very, very good on craft, on understanding what craft really means. Let's go to your exhibition, This Must Be the Place. You have some poetic allusions to work by John Milton, Wallace Stevens, and Emily Dickinson in this show. Could you speak to these works and to your approach more generally of bridging pottery and poetry? 
I'm not sure if I'm bridging anything, really, Spencer. Um, <laughs> the older I get, I have no less and less idea about what I'm doing. Genuinely, if you come into the exhibition, you'll see works which are within vitrines, held within aluminium and glass vitrines on the walls. And these works have porcelain in them. They have porcelain bowls or porcelain vessels. Some are white, some are black. And in these vitrines, you'll also see fragments of text written into black clay, black porcelain, or into white porcelain, sort of shards of text. Pretty illegible, but they're there. And you'll see, for the first time ever, also pieces of of silver. I don't know when you were in the studio. Were there works still there? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they were still up in the studio before they got shipped. So you'll see these sort of glimpses of silver, torn silver, beaten silver, which I've been working on. In And so what you've got is a material dialogue between different kinds of things going on. The sort of energy of these pieces is, for me, is it's a bit... It's about sort of the overheard, the remembered, the witnessing, to use a Ceylan word, of particular people. There are a series of elegies. There are a series for people or places that matter to me. They are almost like sort of John Cage scores. They're a bit like objects that are put out, which are for activating memory or feeling more than pots on shelves. Also in the exhibition, you've made these new stone benches. Yay. Which I got to see in your studio when I visited in May. They're carved out of Kilkenny marble. Tell me about your approach to working with stone as opposed to clay. And I think most people know you for working with clay. Yes, this may come so. as a surprise to some. Yes, I hope it will come as a real surprise. I've only done it before. I did it for worked with stone for making a series of benches for the uh, courtyard of the Musée Nissim de Commandeau, this family house in Paris where, um, where I had an exhibition a couple of years ago. It's a house of my Jewish Parisian family who were murdered in the Shah in Auschwitz. But the house remains intact. And so I wanted to make a sort of series of memorial benches, but not in a kind of heavy way, as a place for people to sit. We could talk about memorial for a long time. I worked with a wonderful stone carver called Corin Johnson, and we, I kind of made my cats out of clay, and then we worked together on how to make these very kind of sensuous, solid benches out of stone. And then I realised I needed to do another thing. And so for here, for New York, for this, this must be the place incredibly heavy, Kilkenny marble, black, with these f- wonderful white, almost sort of side-twombly marks, scribbly marks of fossils embedded in them. And then what I've done is I've cut deeply into the surface of the marble and then beaten silver out, written, scribed on it, effaced it, erased it, and then kind of pressed these pieces of silver deep into the stone. It's sort of, it's that thing that you find in every culture where someone has written a prayer or a letter and they've, something has happened. They need to 
it's kind of intercession, really, and they've they put it into a wall, they put it into a shrine, they put it into a pavement. They they say just they they let it go. Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, extraordinarily, but so many other places in the world. And so this is my kind of this must be the place these benches are called. This is just this is me just saying, just stop, pause here, just sit here. Something's happened. Your other Gagosian exhibition, To the Light and Then Return, pairs your work in conversation with Tin Types and Platinum Prints by Sally Mann. Yes. Such a complete joy, this. <laughs> <laughs> How did this particular show come about? I understand Cy Twombly, actually, is who introduced you to Sally in 2010 after he gave her a copy of your book, The Hair with Amber Eyes. I blush. I mean, that's a pretty cool introduction. <laughs> to say. I'm not I'm not blase about that. He had my book. I gave him my book. He gave a book to Sally. He had some of my pots. He gave me some books back. It was really nice. I knew Sally's work, but we kind of began to write to each other. I wrote a, a, an essay on her extraordinary photographs that she did of Sally Twombly's studio in Lexington, Virginia, after he died. We did a conversation together at the Frick a few years ago when I had a show there. You know, and Sally is is a there are very few artists in the world like her. She's someone I revere as an artist. She is a fiercely exploratory artist in terms of, of place and identity and memorial. She's also one of the greatest writers of nonfiction. And so to be in conversation with her was is extraordinary. And we we sat on a podium at the frick with all these people in front of us and they kind of the people just disappeared we were like just kind of in this conversation and halfway through we kind of made up our minds that we were going to do a show we said oh, screw this we have to do an exhibition together so that was the pact and then over lockdown she sent me some extraordinary images i sent her a few parts and we worked out that this was the show we needed to do. And it's called To Light and Then Return, which is a beautiful fragment from Emily Dickinson. And, you know, for six weeks, our, our works are going to be near each other in a very beautiful gallery uptown. And you know what? I, I went down to see her in, in Virginia in the fall and walked and walked and walked with her, talking about place and poetry and family and and age and proper stuff and i thought what an incredible privilege is to have a, her as an interlocutor as to have someone asking me such fierce questions about myself so it's a great joy it's, it's a great joy and how did you meet sai originally i never met sai oh no we it was a literary friendship. <laughs> so he liked uh, your book. He liked my book. He liked my pots enough to send me a beautiful series of books back with dear Edmund, thank you, scribbled across the whole series of books, which is a kind of installation. Well, it itself. makes sense to me looking at your work and his. There does seem to be an affinity in terms of the work, an interest in language and in ephemerality, I think. 
he's a great rememberer of poetry and rewriter. He's a great palimpsest maker, a terror up of things and re repositioning of them. I once stayed in his house in Gaeta years after he died and and woke up at dawn and saw the, the whiteness of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and suddenly understood <laughs> sort of like an epiphany about the place of white, white within his work, you know, this wonderful white erasure that he does in his work, seeing the whiteness of the Mediterranean at dawn, and suddenly understood his sculpture. You know, this idea of taking the detritus of the world and using household white paint to cover it and make classical sculpture out of the crap that's left behind and then scribbling something on it. So it's a sort of anti-heroic kind of sculpture. And all that stuff talked directly to me and talked directly to my kind of, you know, my kind of painful, long journeys into difficult bits of history. There's a sort of kind of energy that I felt some kind of kinship with. What's interesting here to me is, of course, you are a voracious researcher <laughs> and reader, but also you travel. You go to experience these places. Could you speak to that element? Yeah, that I mean, come on. I mean, don't you hate it? And you pick up another bloody book and you think, <laughs> and you think, this is just Google. <laughs> you know, they've just phoned in this effing book. You have to go and be and walk and count steps of staircases and feel the warmth or, or, the coldness of a banister rail and you have to go into archives and call up those papers and records and keep going until you find what's there and what isn't there. I mean, you just have to do the work. You have to do the work. Otherwise, you're skating this thin existence. You're kind of you know, when, when I went to see the, in Jaipur, to see the, this great observatory that Noguchi had, had photographed, had been on pilgrimage to see, and I went on pilgrimage to see it and to see what Noguchi had seen, you know, in this blazing sun, seeing how the shadows move. It's so profoundly generative of ideas. Things change, things shift when you actually go to places. You know, suddenly my relationship with Noguchi just shifts a little bit on its axis, you know, having been there. But going into the archives in, oh, God help me, Vienna and Berlin and Theresienstadt and all these difficult places, you know, they also shift the ground on which you stand. I think you have a choice, go or don't go, but ultimately... I think ultimately it makes a difference. These two Gagosian shows are the first New York gallery exhibitions in a decade. Though, of course, you've had, as you mentioned, this Frick 
exhibition slash intervention called Elective Affinities. And you also had the Hair with Amber Eyes exhibition at the Jewish Museum here in 2021. How do you think about this particular period of time, these 10 years, and your life and work since that first Gagosian exhibition here in 2013? I'm a husk of the man that I was 10 years ago. I'm <laughs> gray, old, <laughs> full of years. No, I mean, what a, what a decade for me. I mean, the reality is, of course, that it's been an extraordinary family decade with my partner and my kids. They are now out in the world, and so it's a decade of, of great change in my life. But there have been books. I've made a library of exile that began in Venice during the Biennale. I've worked in I've worked in complicated spaces, Spencer. So in these last 10 years, I've, I've done exhibitions, interventions in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna, an exhibition called During the Night, which was an exhibition about anxiety, an exhibition that looked at that institution and its power and connection to the Holocaust. But in a tangential way, you know, looking at its collections, looking at shadows, looking at anxiety. I've worked in the ghetto in Venice, you know, thinking about the life of that particular place. You know, I've done things in a kind of really complicated institutional spaces. Most recently at the Musée Camondeau, where a house which has been untouched and where the will of Maurice de Camondeau says, nothing must be moved, nothing must be changed. So I make work which sits very lightly in the house, sits in the attics and in the archives and in the sort of forgotten spaces. I guess this is a long-winded way of answering your question. I feel I've grown into this practice I've got, which is, it's a practice about memory, really. I'm making things, I'm making texts, and I'm putting them down in the world and seeing if they have any weight to them at all. I don't know what happens next. <laughs> well, you've also curated an exhibition that's about to open of the Danish ceramicists Axel Salto at the Clay Museum of Ceramic Art, Denmark. Tell me about this presentation, about your relationship with Salto's work and what it's been like for you to work on that project. Salto is extraordinary. He should be universally known, loved, admired, respected, and sort of he isn't yet. This is where I admit I had never heard of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should have. <laughs> And now you do. So he's the mid-century Danish poet, editor, illustrator, graphic artist, educator, and ceramicist. And he, haunted by Ovid, by Ovid's Metamorphosis, this wonderful text about change and transformation, 
which he completely understands as being the kind of principal foundational image about how pots happen. You, know, you make something and it will be changed. It will be transformed in the heat and fire kind of of the kiln. So he turns this image of the fire of the kiln and connects it to Ovid, Ovid's metamorphosis. And he produces this amazing body of work. He's the only potter I know who talks about anxiety and pots. You know, he says, actually, do you know my pots are supposed to be provocative? They're supposed to make you feel worried. I mean, wow. And so there's a, you know, I, I had this chance to work with an extraordinary museum and an extraordinary collection of these objects. And I put this on and I've made a new installation, but this, this exhibition begins in, in Denmark. It then goes to a remarkable new museum in Norway and ends up in the UK. And there's a beautiful book which brings together his writings for the first time in English, which also gets published next week with a big text by me on why I love this wonderful artist. Hey everyone, taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our Season 8 presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels, which this year is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels at the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals. On view through January 2024, Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the U.S., for the first time. Creating a lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones forms a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. To learn more, visit www.amnh.org exhibitions. That's www.amnh.org exhibitions. And now, back to the episode. Let's go back to your upbringing in Nottingham and Lincoln in England. Your father was a chaplain and later a cathedral chancellor, and your mother was a lecturer in history. You grew up next to cathedrals, which are some of your earliest memories, from what I understand. Could you speak to the atmosphere of your upbringing around these spaces and also how these spaces have had a long-term impact on you? In long retrospect, of course, it's extraordinary to think of a childhood growing up in an unheated medieval house <laughs> with spiral staircases and box rooms and a chapel. I read that it was <laughs> dating back to 1316. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With a crypt, I mean, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's kind of... Um, and a garden which was wild, where my brothers, my three brothers and I did our own archaeological dig in the summers, <laughs> digging up medieval <laughs> stuff in the Mac garden. You know, but in the shadow of, first of all, Lincoln Cathedral, unbelievably beautiful, austere Gothic cathedral, it was so 
cold and empty that you sometimes felt that there was fog actually in the cathedral. But what a place, you know, to hear the services week in, week out. My father was chancellor, which meant he was responsible for the library. So we grew up being allowed to go into the library and look at medieval manuscripts. But those spaces are beautiful, lambent, sacred spaces, filled with silence, filled with sound. That was the beginning. And then we moved to an even bigger house in Canterbury when he became Dean of Canterbury. There was a key to the cathedral, so you could just, as a child, go in at night just by yourself into the cathedral, lie on a floor, medieval floor, looking up into the medieval Gothic roof, just the light from outside coming through the stained glass windows. What does it do? It sets a pretty high benchmark in terms of understanding what what a sacred space means, which is one thing. It also, it's a wellspring, to be honest, because that's the architecture, but the reality of our family life is that throughout the childhood, there was an open door. We never knew who was going to be there at lunch, and it was a succession of writers and actors and people from different faiths and academics coming through. We had a wonderful monk came for a couple of weeks and he stayed four years as a hermit in one of the towers of the house. You know, <laughs> it's kind of an odd upbringing. <laughs> well, there's something so magical or alchemical even about the sounds of this. And I know as a student at King's School, you found a mentor in the potter, Jeffrey Whiting, who instilled in you this notion of pottery as a calling. Tell me a bit about him, your time with him. I owe so much to him. He was a, a wonderful man. He was very austere. He lived incredibly simply. And it was vocational for him. He was also extremely good on discipline. So he had this sense that, which he passed on, you know, he said the first 20,000 pots you make are the worst to me, my apprenticeship. <laughs> and it gets easier after that. So working with him, it was instilling the rhythm and, of repetition through, through making functional pots. So it was, you know, make 40 soup bowls, make another 40 soup bowls like 80 honey pots. You know, this is, this is the 70s and 80s. <laughs> I mean, it you sounds know. like a, a drummer le learning rudiments or something. It's completely basic. For any it, it, Visual artists, I'm slightly surprised by that sense. Of, but actually any musician, it's, it's scales and arpeggios. It's the understanding that any art has to become somatically... <laughs> forgotten in your body that you can just it, you can just rely on your deep tacit knowledge <laughs> and that's the beginning you know and so jeffrey made a particular kind of work and i was very very much in that world for a long time that particular discipline you know I, and i've moved away from it but it's 
but I will always respect that training. It was, I was profoundly lucky to spend those years. I started when I was 12 with him, going every afternoon. You know, 17, left school, went to Japan, came back, did a two-year apprenticeship with him. So, you know, it's a many, many, many hours sitting next to him, him on his wheel, me on mine, me just failing to make one pot after another. <laughs> There's another important figure I wanted to bring up here, Dr. Sen no Soshitsu, a tea ceremony master and 15th generation head of the Yurosenke School of Tea in Kyoto. You had an auspicious meeting with him uh, around, I think, age 17. Yes, yes. What did he tell you exactly? And, 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 and maybe share a bit about the importance of meeting him. He, he, was, he was extraordinary. He had a great... Um, most people might think, if they think about Japanese tea masters, think about someone who's so kind of, you know, hierarchically removed from the world. It'd be absolutely terrifying. And then this, this wonderful man, this extraordinary charismatic man, who'd, he'd come to England. There was a great Japan exhibition at the Royal Academy, the great first huge international exhibition of Japanese art. And he'd come to do tea ceremony in Britain. And he came to Canterbury on pilgrimage, like so many people came, and then there he was. <laughs> and I met him. He'd done a tea ceremony in the cathedral, and I said, I'm a potter. And he said, well, that's all very well and good, but you haven't been to Kyoto. <laughs> you haven't made tea come to Japan. And he invited me to go to Japan. So I left school, went to Japan. And you know what, it, you know, that's pretty lucky. I got a lovely photograph of him. I'm sort of 17 and gauche and wearing a corduroy jacket and looking incredibly embarrassed. He's quite a lot smaller than me. And he's gesturing, <laughs> a great gesture going, you're too tall. You're going to bump your head. <laughs> you know, duck, <laughs> come to Japan, but duck. <laughs> And it's a lovely picture, which takes me back to that encounter. It was just, just, just tremendous. He's still alive. Wow. He must be a hundred. He's a hundred. Wow. <laughs> so tell me about your journey or journeys, I should say, to Japan. I know in 1982, you made this first journey and later in 1990, you returned how do you think about your relationship to Japan? In the early years, you've <laughs> described it as a deep, congested infatuation <laughs> with the country. <laughs> How's your relationship to Japan grown, evolved, changed, shifted, mutated? It was, I mean, it, I think congested infatuation is, is pretty much, you know, it was a sort of adolescent kind of yearning to be kind of, to, to be there, to kind of to sit in a Zen rock garden forever, <laughs> you know, only drink tea. So all that stuff. You know. And also to make, you know, Minge pots, that was my kind of calling. I had to make the folk craft. That was, that was, you know. So going back, going back was an extraordinary thing because there I was in Tokyo for a year and I, there, two things happened. Three things happened. One was that I was spending my time researching a book on, on Yonagi Sotsu, the great theoretician of the, of, of the folk craft movement 
in another bloody archive <laughs> and his relationship with Bernard Leach, the sort of godfather of studio ceramics, which ended up as a kind of well, a good small cross book about Bernard Leach, sort of, you know, give a bit more criticality to him. So that was happening. But I was also using porcelain for the first time in Tokyo. So not sort of brown stoneware clays, but begin to explore so play, you know, come back to the Gucci thing. <laughs> I was playing with clay for the first time for decades. I've been very serious for a very long time. And the third thing that happened in Japan was that I spent a huge amount of time with my very beloved great uncle, Iggy von Efrissi, who was then in his 80s, who'd had this extraordinary life of exile from one place after another, from Vienna to America, to finally finding a home in Japan. And I used to spend a lot of time with him, just at a point in his life when he was reminiscing about life at the turn of the last century, an extraordinary time to be with him, hearing about really a kind of a completely lost Jewish Viennese life. I mean, so, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine the hair with amber eyes ever existing were it not for your, for Iggy. Well, it wouldn't have existed. Yeah. It wouldn't have existed. And I, so there I was, you know, in his sitting room, drinking extremely good white wine <laughs> with him, <laughs> listening to his stories about seeing dancing bears with Romani traveling travelers on their Czechoslovakian estate before the First World War, you know, seeing the emperor, Franz Josef, in his carriage stopping in front of their house on the Ringstrasse to wave to his very gorgeous mother from the balcony. The Anschluss, growing up as a as a gay young man in, in Vienna and escaping to become a fashion designer in New York, the worst fashion designer on the East Coast. And, he's, you know, and, and, and then, you know, falling in love and going back to, and, and, you know, this collection of Netsuke, which, family collection, which he brings to Japan, he builds this great, beautiful house with a vitrine of Netsuke in the heart of it. His life with Jiro, my beloved Japanese uncle, they were together for 40 years. Music, art, and then all these non-elegiac, non-sentimental, powerful stories of his life. And then when he dies and I go back to Japan, I'm with Jiro and we bury Iggy in a very, very beautiful Buddhist temple. Ab Buddhist abbot says his prayers and I say the Kaddish for him, you know, in a Buddhist temple. It's an extraordinary thing to have been in his life at that moment. And then we, Jiro and I go back to the empty apartment and Jiro opens this letter to say that I've inherited the Netsuke collection, the fifth generation, 1870. There I am in Tokyo having inherited it. I feel like it's impossible to have a conversation or interview with you without bringing up the hair with Amber Eyes. So much has been 
written about, spoken about. So I don't want to go too deep into it, but I was thinking, and I love how you phrase this in the book. You're like, how can I explain this idiotic quest? <laughs> you know, you spent seven years researching and writing this book, not to say anything about all the time you spent with Iggy prior to even conceiving it. I wanted to ask, how do you think about those seven years? And what did writing The Hair with Amber Eyes teach you about time? One of the strangest things about inhabiting that journey and the story of, of my family that I trace, Tokyo, Vienna, Paris, Odessa, London, is the sense of proximity of the dead. For me, the the fact that my great-grandfather, Victor, <laughs> you know, born in Odessa in 1860, grows up in a newly built house on the Ringstrasse in Vienna, whose wife commits suicide in 1938 as the Nazis approach. He, finally gets to London as an old man by himself in 1939. And he dies in exile in 1945, quoting to my father bits of Virgil that he had learned as a young... Is that far away? Is there any sense of distance in time for that extraordinary trajectory of life? For me, no. Absolutely not. I go to Odessa and I walk through the different places of that and Vienna and Czechoslovakia and, and back into exile. And so about time, the writing and the researching took a good biblical seven years. But that proximity of, of someone's life, of witnessing through the scraps that I know, the objects, the, the moments, the places, the what's left aspect of one person's life means that time contracts and contracts and contracts and contracts so that I can see him. I can see him at his desk in Vienna. I can see him in his library. I can hear the sounds of that house, you know, on a Tuesday morning. And of course I can't, but actually, Spencer, I actually can. <laughs> so time, and bear with me, because it's the same thing for me as when I pick up a Sung Dynasty pot or something. You feel the pulse of the making of that object. And time actually does a very strange, strange thing. So these things are very close to each other. There's strong overlaps about those journeys 
to be near people and those journeys by picking up objects and beginning to try and understand to tell their stories. Time is absolutely the heart of that. As you were saying this, I was just thinking back to what you were saying earlier in this conversation, describing Noguchi and Kamakura. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't that image of him at that moment in his life, you know, scraping the clay on the wall and then placing very deliberately this ancient Japanese sculptural head into the wall as a sort of touchstone for his practice. It's returning to earth, it's returning to place, it's returning to people and finding presence. You've written two more books, The White Road and Letters to Komondo. In Letters, which came out in 2021, you go deeper into your relationship with the Rue de Monceau in Paris, which is where Charles de Frusi, a cousin of your great-grandfather, bought a house in the 1870s. In the book you write, I'm a little embarrassed by how much time I've spent in the Rue de Monceau, how many days I've spent reading about it, haunting it. You've called it a street of conversations, a street of beginnings. Tell me about this 20-plus year affair with the Rue de Monceau and what you've learned by spending so much time on one street. Well, I think way back, actually in Hair With Amber Eyes, I, I say that you need a lot of time, to spend a lot of time watching a house to be able to understand it. it sounds really sort of perverted and bonkers and just like, so, why is this guy, why is this middle-aged white Englishman sitting out on the street watching a French house? Like, what's, <laughs> what's he doing? Move him on, for God's sake, arrest him. But you know what? There's a kind of truth about spending a lot of time with something. It can be clay, but it can be a street. And what's so strange about this street, why I've spent so much time in it, is that it is a street of beginnings. It's a street that's created by newly arrived families who have decided that France, Paris, is going to be their home. This is where they're going to bring up their families. They're going to become French. They're even more importantly Parisian. Probably Parisian rather than French, actually. And so they build houses which have a certain swagger and panache and occupy a certain amount of space to say that they are not wandering Jews anymore. It's a street of Jewish families that they've arrived and they're staying put. And then you can trace, you know, who marries who, who, <laughs> which synagogues they go to, whether they meet at the Bourse or at the opera, or who has illegitimate children with whom, or whatever, or who, in the case of the Frissies and the Camondo, you know, who's buying which Manet. On which day, and in the park, the Parc de Monceau. So it's it becomes this street of connections, but it also becomes you know, and that's all kind of wonderful and glorious, and it's sort of like a like a you know a movie, very kind of sepia movie, but you know, and this is why the 
I needed to write my letters to Camondo. The same street in 1940 becomes a street where all these long, deep relationships with Paris, these families are, are fractured, you know, one by one by one. You know, the requisitioning of houses, the deportation of families. You know, this becomes the headquarters of the paramilitary milice. This becomes the house which is um, requisitioned for you know, this particular functionary. This is where this happens to this family, this happens to that family. This is where the Rosenbergs are. And then the Camondo cousins arrested. Drancy, the concentration camp, guarded, as you know, by French policemen. And then the, the trains to Auschwitz. So this beautiful hill of golden houses, which is a, a hill of, of aspiration, it's a place of the projecting of possibility deep into the into the future becomes a place of fracture. And the effing French, you know, you can walk up and down that street and you do not know what happened. There are no stumble stones like there are in Berlin or Dresden or anywhere else. You have no sense that this is a street of of deportations at all. And so 20 years, yes, but it, over 20 years it deepens and some things come to the front of my life, Spencer, and Letters to Camondo is full of anger. I found it interesting prior to this interview, I reread The Hair with Amber Eyes and seeing the moments where you mention the Camondo family, it's almost like a foreshadowing of this other book to come. Do you think about it that way? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of threads within The Hair to Amber Eyes that could become other books. <laughs> God help me, I don't know where those threads are. <laughs> You're probably right. I haven't ever reread The Hair with Amber Eyes. I don't reread what I've written, perhaps I should. I don't know what's next. I'm not sure what's next. I'm demurring a little here. I'm not being dishonest, I'm just demurring because there are some things which are, have a certain sort of fragility when that you don't necessarily want to share quite yet. But there will be more books. I'd like to turn this conversation back to Potts and uh, to Rhythm and Breath, which are, I think, so central to your work and, and of course, the time. How do you think about the roles of Rhythm and Breath in your practice, your process, and, and in your installations? I think it's completely my grounding, really, which is that the making of one vessel and then making the, another vessel, taking it off the wheel, making another one, has a extraordinary element of rhythm within it. 
But at the heart of the rhythm, of course, is this interior space of a vessel, which is a breath. And so there's a sort of embodiment there of us almost a sort of a breathing into the vessel. I don't want to sound like God or Prometheus or <laughs> anything like that. But there is, you know, for me, a, a vessel is a contained, a container of breath. So putting these objects down in the world, of course, what I'm doing is making different kinds of sort of congeries of rhythms, different kinds of of spaces between objects, between breaths. And that's poetry. You know, that is poetry. It's pots on a shelf, for God's sake, Spencer. Of course it's <laughs> pots on a shelf. You know, that's what it is. But for me, for me, that's also a kind of sounding of the world. It's a kind of rhythmical sounding of the world. I listen to music all the time. And sometimes it's Philip Glass or Tehillim by... Reich or, but this last year, and this is very present actually in this exhibition here in New York, a lot of Morton Feldman. <laughs> so, and Morton Feldman is incredible about sort of breath and space within his work. I feel like I'm learning so much by, by listening to him. So I have no idea what you asked me as a question. I completely tangentially <laughs> well, derailed. Your no, you didn't. Thought. I mean, it was about rhythm and breath. But I think what we're also sort of talking about, I mean, you mentioned Philip Glass. Another thing we're talking about here is repetition. Mm, yes. And there is this sort of role of repetition of the making of pots as a repetitive act. And then you play with that repetitive act in your installations. Yes. It seems to me that repetition is a way of trying to understand the world. It's trying to understand singularity by being iterative, by returning to something. That's a very personal act. And it can be wonderful and propulsive, as in different trains or Einstein on a beach, where, where you have these great, almost overwhelming repetitions of phrases, returns to things, this, this great orchestration of repetition. But it can also be Agnes Martin, a single line, and then another line. It can be as simple as that. And I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to that because that's what I've internalized over more than five decades of making things. Let's end with another constant of your work, the act of letting go. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's an appropriate place to end because it's hard for me to even let go of this interview. I had so many questions and things I wanted to ask. <laughs> but you've written, and I absolutely love this line. Well, thank God for that. Finally. <laughs> Losing things can sometimes oh. gain you a space in which to live. You've also written, I think you cannot give up your loss, cannot lose loss. As someone who makes a living <laughs> from letting things go, how do you come to terms with this dichotomy? What are your philosophies, I suppose, on letting go? I'm not nearly grand enough to have a philosophy, Spencer. And it's so personal, this. The first line comes towards the end of The Hair with Amber Eyes, where I'm talking about my grandmother burning the letters of her mother, a 
huge, huge stack of letters. And just making a private space where no one can intrude. So a week ago, before I, in London, my father, who is 94, almost 95, lives in a very small apartment, produces a box of letters, 120 letters that I had no idea about, between my grandmother and my grandfather, going all the way back to 1927. Wow. And another series of letters between my grandmother and her best friend during the war, which talk about what will happen if the Nazis invade and whether they will have to take their own lives. So letting go, um, making space, yeah, I'm really in favor of it. And then the world turns you on your head and produces something else that you didn't know. And then, you know, you have to deal with it. So I let work go into the world. I have to. I have to make a living. I have to. My studio can't be full of pots. I have to make space for the next thing. And that's wonderful. That's important. That, that's a kind of letting go. But the second quote you quoted, putting a finger deep the, <laughs> into, my, into my heart <laughs> here. No, you're not. You're bloody good at it. You know that. Is me saying to Moise de Camondo, who has, whose son has died, and he's trapped. He's trapped in grief. He's trapped in bereavement. And so he decides to uh, create this house this extraordinary house as a kind of memorial to his son. His, this house will survive, will be passed on into the future generations as a memorial. And I understand that, that in bereavement, you can't let go. You return. You return and you return and you return and you return because actually, even though you're trying to make something external, which will be independent and externalize your loss. At the heart of it is the return to an emotion that is very difficult to let go. You know, you've written an extraordinary book about memorials. You know, this is our conversation over the last few years, you know, and I'm trying to understand that in the books I write and also in the work I make. And it's a process. It will continue. So it's a very good way of ending because I haven't a clue about letting go. Edmund, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It's been much looked forward to and it's been even more wonderful. Extra thanks to our Season 8 presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and our pals. Van Cleef and Arpels' jewelry is characterized by a distinctive blend of poetry and refinement. With its iconic jewelry collections, it is an invitation to a timeless universe of beauty and harmony. You can discover more at vancleefarpels.com. That's V-A-N-C-L-E-E-F-A-R-P-E-L-S.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To join the Slowdown's new membership program, which provides access to subscriber-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, curated recommendations, and exclusive event invitations, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, Amy Hannon, Hazen Mayo, and Johnny Simon.